Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, October 7th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the University of Mississippi Medical Center observes rising case counts of a rare post-COVID disease in children. Then, our series on diabetes in the state continues, and journalist Robert Costa talks Peril, his new book with Bob Woodward. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Over the past year and a half, plenty of kids in Mississippi have come down with COVID-19. The overwhelming majority of them recover pretty easily without need for powerful drugs or a hospital stay. In some rare cases, a child can remain symptom-free for weeks after the virus is no longer detectable in his or her body. Then suddenly, something strange and dangerous happens. Dr. Charlotte Hobbs is a professor of pediatric infectious disease at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She tells Kobe Vance the phenomenon has a name. MISC, or multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, is a um, post-COVID hyperinflammatory syndrome that um, was identified um, about a year and a half ago now first in a case series that came out of northern Italy. Children, of course, in that area, contemporaneous with about the time that people had started to, you know, have COVID infections, a few weeks after the community peak started to have a clinical syndrome that looks very similar to something called Kawasaki's disease that basically is itself a distinct hyperinflammatory syndrome. Um, so basically, a few weeks after SARS-CoV-2 infection, certain children, and it is actually a rare occurrence, although very serious, if it does happen, has to be treated aggressively, can actually develop this um, tremendous amount of inflammation in their bodies that ends up causing damage to multi-systems or different you know, organs of different systems within their bodies. Notably, um, this can occur um, with the heart. It can occur with the central nervous system. It can occur with basically various systems. But um, the long and the short of it is that it is a um, tremendous hyper-inflammatory uh, syndrome that occurs 
in children um, after acute SARS-CoV-2 infection. There have been cases identified also in adults, but MISC actually stands for multi- multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. So what are y'all seeing in the medical center right now uh, in pediatrics? So we're seeing something that I, you know, did not anticipate. We saw, of course, a pretty high um, peak of acute SARS-CoV-2 infections, you know, in the month of August, about the, the end of August or so. And we saw a decrease in the number of cases overall, predominantly on the adult side and also on the pediatric side. But about, you know, a week or two ago, we've started to see an uptick in the acute SARS-CoV-2 cases again. And then in parallel to that, we're seeing an uptick in the multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children cases, which we anticipate because this is basically the way this happens. Um, They usually occur about four to six weeks after a peak of community infection. I think that the concurrent or the concomitant relaxation of universal masking at many schools that occurred a few weeks ago is now resulting in us seeing this unusual epidemiologic pattern of acute SARS-CoV-2 infection in parallel to MISC, because usually you see acute SARS-CoV-2 first, and then you see this post-infectious hyperinflammatory syndrome of MISC. But right now we're seeing both at the medical center, um, and it just happens to be timed a few weeks after the relaxation of mask mandates, which makes um, sense in terms of what we know scientifically about um, acute SARS-CoV-2 infection. Usually you see children become more severely ill from an acute infection within a week or 10 days or so after their um, initial exposure and infection with the virus. So we're, we're basically seeing something that hasn't really been seen before in children in, in, in Mississippi, for sure, in the sense that we're seeing acute SARS-CoV-2 infections um, in parallel to the MISC cases in addition. And the acute SARS-CoV-2 infections we've been seeing manifest in children in the form of not only the you know typical lung manifestations, but we've actually seen some children present with acute um, myocarditis due to SARS-CoV-2 infection as well. Since the pandemic began last year, 83 children have uh, been identified in Mississippi with Miss C. And of those 83, 80 have been hospitalized at Children's in Mississippi. What does that say to you as you see that level of need of care for this particular infection? So it's it's actually 83 and counting, um, number one, because we've had additional cases over the past few weeks that are, you know, still um, occurring, you know, in real time. But basically what it says is that these children are actually really quite sick and do necessitate um, a high um, level of care. The um, other important point to mention is that um, the care that these children require has to be based in a multidisciplinary team approach, meaning that we as infectious disease physicians take care of these children, but we need our colleagues in cardiology and rheumatology, sometimes even neurology, and certainly in every case, um, hematology, to help us manage these cases because they're very, very complex. And most of the time, these children actually will go straight to the intensive care unit. So we, of course, work very closely with our intensive care uh, unit teams to, to be very aggressive in terms of managing these children. But the University of Mississippi Medical Center, of course, is able to provide this care because of the subspecialists who exist at the medical center. But the level of acuity um, overall is actually quite high, and the care is very complex and does require a multidisciplinary um, specialty approach. You mentioned earlier that y'all have been seeing more cases recently. How 
are cases right now of Missy being identified versus what we saw in the past two surges back in, say, January or July of last year? In the winter surge of acute COVID, we did not see certainly the number of children coming in with acute SARS-CoV-2 infection that we've seen certainly in the past month or two. That's number one. Number two, in terms of MISC, in the previous surge, we saw a clearer delineation of community peak transmission and then the MIC cases occurring, you know, four to six weeks later or so, because there were more measures that were being implemented in terms of universal masking for um, children at school. Many children were still actually um, being virtually schooled, and we actually know that that's not necessary to keep a child home from school in the COVID pandemic because if appropriate mitigation measures are in place in schools, we know that children benefit so much more from in-person learning than virtual schooling, and they actually can be kept safe from infection or reduce the risk of infection, I should say, um, if appropriate mitigation measures are in place. But the difference now is that um, we're seeing MISC cases that came after the peaks in the end of August, but as those seem to subside somewhat, they re-increased in parallel to the subsiding of acute COVIDs that we saw in August, which are also re-increasing. So again, seeing both of these really separate conditions that are both attributed to SARS-CoV-2 at the same time in children is um, not something we've seen before. And it just correlates temporally with when, you know, a number of schools decided to relax their universal masking mandates. And the data is extremely, extremely clear that masking and other mitigation measures such as distancing, um, hand hygiene, all significantly reduce the transmission of SARS-CoV-2. Dr. Charlotte Hobbs is a professor of pediatric infectious disease at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Coming up, we return to our series on diabetes in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. So far this week, we've chronicled Frank Hen's journey with diabetes throughout his teenage years and into his early adulthood. We left off in the mid-2000s. At that time, Frank tells us he was scraping by while paying $800 out of pocket for each vial of his insulin. I mean, you know, being being younger and, you, you know, you have a job, especially in Mississippi, you have to have a car to get to your job. Uh, I've always owned my houses since I was, you know, 19 years old because it's around here. It's cheaper. You, you make certain sacrifices in your, in your life. You know, you, you don't go out to eat or you don't go hang out with your friends or you don't go on a trip. It got to a point where I had a hard time paying my mortgage probably 12, 13 years ago. And, you know, at the time my mortgage is $600 a month. My car was paid for, but work work was scarce. You know, the housing market was crashing and the effects of the economy were happening. And so you go buy insulin, but, well, I, I can't pay my mortgage this month because I just spent $800 on this bottle of insulin. And so I'm going to let my mortgage slide for a month. Well, that's cool. They'll let you slide on your mortgage for a month, but they're going to add all these fees on top of it. And, well, so now next month I owe – 
$1,200 plus $100 in fees or whatever it was. And I still have to buy insulin next month. So I'm going to have to let that slide again. You get the three months and you got to pay all your fees and all your mortgage or they come take your house. Right. And it, so then you're, you're like, well, where do, where do I get the $3,000 all of a sudden for my mortgage and still buy insulin? Do I eat? If I don't eat as much, will I not use as much insulin? It gets, it gets deep. And I mean, it, when you don't have money, everything gets more expensive. You know, you, you can't afford your car insurance. So you can't afford your car tag. You get pulled over. Now you've got to pay for your car insurance, your car tag, court costs, all your fines, and still buy insulin and still pay your mortgage and still eat, but you can't afford any of it, you know, because you, you just, you bought your insulin. <laughs> it's tough. I mean, I, I was fortunate to have friends that helped me out through those times and, you know, getting roommates and your dad, you do what you can to survive, you know, whether it's diabetes or not, you know, and it's, everybody has to do it differently and everybody figures out a, a different path to take and everybody's diabetes is, is completely different. You Did know? you ever have to ration your insulin? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's making your decision like, well, you, you ration insulin or you ration food you take your you take your insulin and then you spend more on test strips because you're worrying about like what your blood sugar is doing or you don't worry about any of it and just hope for the best is is really what what a lot of people do for a long time you know you can't you just know you can't afford that you can't um and it, not just insulin uh test strips are expensive they'll give you a meter but it's going to be $100 for some test strips you know uh that'll last you half a month Insulin pumps are expensive. The the infusion sets that you use for the insulin pumps are expensive. The CGM, the continuous glucose monitors, are expensive. I broke my ankle riding my skateboard when I was like 24 years old. Had a, a full time job, making money, was paying you know a hundred dollars a month for insurance or something like that at the time. Broke my ankle skateboarding, and they wouldn't cover it because I was diabetic. They say that my numbers weren't in control enough, and that's the reason I broke my ankle. Things like that. Like, everything would relate back to diabetes. So I just quit getting insurance. I quit paying for insurance through jobs because uh, what's the point? Everything's wait, wait, wait. Stop, stop. I want to go back to your ankle again. You broke your okay. ankle skateboarding, and they denied it, paying for it because of your diabetes? Because Yes. Because your blood sugar made you have an accident on your skateboard? Because my numbers weren't in control enough for them to, so they thought that my my blood sugar being out of their range of control caused me to fall on my skateboard and break my ankle, and so they wouldn't cover it. And it, it's always everything it, you can, you know, you can wordsmith your way around anything and put it off on diabetes to where you're not going to pay out. You know. Um, wow, that's my only reaction to that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I had a much more violent reaction to that, honestly. <laughs> <I imagine>. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned test strips being expensive. The uh, the insulin, you said, as much as $800. What was the cost of the other things that you needed, like the test strips in order to take your blood sugar, the needles that you have to use to administer your insulin? What was the overall cost with all these things? Yeah, so this is all where you ration as well, right? So I had the same box of 100 needles for years. I just reused the needles. Um, I'd, you reuse your finger prickers. 
that that draws blood out of your finger to to put on the test strip. The test strips, as best I can remember, they're about a hundred dollars a month if you're going to test the recommended amount. But you don't you don't you don't have that money, so you don't test the recommended amount. You're doing good if you test once a day. Or I was doing good at the time if I was testing once a day, and that that is just you know being in college or something. How do how do you be in college and live <laughs> and survive when you got a hundred dollars for this, three four hundred dollars for insulin at the time? There's still still eat and survive on like four hundred dollars a month somehow, you know. And you're working at the the Arby's up the street, and you know you're not, you you're, you can't. It's a breaking point. For Frank, some relief finally came in 2010 with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Now I've got real good insurance through my wife uh, and her job. And then so now I have an endocrinologist that I go to every three months. I have a nephrologist I go to. I have all these doctors. I've got a cardiologist. I see once you know, I have a general practitioner, which I, I never had. I never, ever, ever had all that before. Uh, and I could there's no way I could afford you know, to buy insulin and then still see an endocrinologist every three months. The difference is because you're on insurance that has no pre-existing that that bans pre-existing conditions. That that's the biggest that's the biggest thing. Of course, there's nothing Frank could do to fix the damage his body had weathered over the years in which he'd rationed insulin, and that damage was significant. More tomorrow. Coming up, Robert Costa talks Peril, his new book with Bob Woodward. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Peril, the latest book from journalists Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, chronicles the fraught transition of power from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. The story Woodward and Costa strain together is extraordinarily intimate and precise, so much so that it feels at times almost like a work of fiction. Costa assures us, however, that Peril has been fact-checked to within an inch of its life. We spent a lot of time, about nine months, trying to fully confirm all of our details, just trying to go back to as many people as possible to verify different accounts. And you ultimately come up with composite different threads that build the whole story. Who did those 200 people, or more than 200, I guess, represent? Advisors, White House staff, the inner circle with former President Trump and President Biden? Many people who were directly involved with events, conversations, some highly familiar with them, others directly involved themselves. We wrote the book on what's called a deep background basis. And in a note to readers, we try to spell exactly what this means. And it means we collect as much information we can. We confirm as much as we can. We just don't discuss where we learned it from. And that's a way of getting people to really open up their emails, diaries, transcripts, notes, etc., Some of the largest revelations in the book were released to the media ahead of the book's release. And the most jarring, perhaps, was General Milley calming Nancy Pelosi's nerves after the January 6th insurrection by saying he would prevent any military aggression by then-President Trump. Was the bombshell here that Trump 
would consider bombing another nation or that Milley would keep it from happening? So some clarity is needed there. What happened on October 30th, 2020, in January 2021, was General Milley spoke by phone based on our reporting with the head of the People's Liberation Army in China, General Li. And he made these calls and had these calls on a back channel because there was U.S. intelligence that showed the Chinese feared a wag-the-dogs type attack from President Trump. But as we say in the book, Milley knew Trump did not want to attack China, and Milley testified under oath last week. He knew Trump did not want to attack China. The purpose of the calls was to prevent miscommunication, because as we have all seen throughout history, miscommunication can be the seed of war. And for the senior military officer in the United States, avoiding a great powers war is everything. We know that several times in the book, Trump is referred to by others as a narcissist, a psychopath, someone with mental health issues. Was this a recurring theme of what you heard? It is certainly a theme. Uh, it actually begins in the the start of the book. One of the early chapters is about former House Speaker Paul Ryan. And this was stunning for us to learn in our reporting that at the time when Trump's elected in late 2016, Paul Ryan, the speaker, is so confused by Trump and doesn't have a way to connect with him personally that he starts to study psychiatric manuals on narcissistic personality disorder to better understand Trump. And this was never known until this book came out. When you step back and you wonder, wow, the Speaker of the House, to understand the president in his own party, was looking to psychiatric manuals. This was a, a different period, to say the least, in American history. You have 29 pages of source notes, and those notes come anywhere from a television network or cable network or publications. Do you see this book as chronicling history or providing insight? Well, hopefully it, it's both. At first and foremost, it's a, it's a product of reporting, putting a mirror up to those in power and trying to show what was actually happening behind the scenes. What were people saying? What were people doing? And our hope is, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, is that by learning more about events and conversations and about what people were doing, people can come to their own insights and conclusions, fresh insights and conclusions about what these events all mean. That January 6th, for example, was not just about January 6th, but it was about the days prior in the Eastman memo by conservative lawyer John Eastman outlining a six-point plan to prevent Biden certification. It was about all these meetings uh, held during the transition period. It was about a national security emergency with Milley in China. All, all of these things are new, and it took us months to figure out. And those events and the reporting on them hopefully provide people with insight. During your investigative reporting, what did you find that surprised you the most? What surprised me the most was the national security emergency component. Because just like so many people, I watched the events of January 6th and thought, this is so unsettling. It's a domestic crisis. But I wasn't thinking about how the rest of the world was processing it all and how alarmed adversaries and allies were about the state of American democracy. That, when we discovered the level of alarm uh, in China, Iran, in Europe, as they watched the scenes themselves, it really added a new dimension to the consequence of January 6th. The name of the book, Peril, suggests you're looking into the future 
What is the peril that lies ahead? Well, the title comes from a phrase in Joe Biden's inaugural address, January 20th, 2021, where he references the transition period, and he calls it this winter of peril. And what we see now is the winter of peril from January of this year has become a spring and summer and now fall of peril. The challenges facing this country, a deeply divided political system, the fallout from Afghanistan, a standoff on Capitol Hill overspending, and never forget the ongoing global pandemic. All these issues persist. The peril persists. The peril remains. Robert Costa with Bob Woodward is the author of Peril. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.